Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you. We are connected by Zoom, and my understanding is that there are some technical difficulties. I may freeze on occasion, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like freeze tag when you're a kid. You know, maybe, you know, Tom or Glenn can tap me and I'll be unfrozen after, after I've been frozen. But anyway, I'm having a little fun with that. That's obviously not how, not how it works. But we're glad to have you with us. Tom, you are on the Thames. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So or, got- or I, I would, maybe I would like to be. Anyway, the, uh, from what I understand, uh, pubs have reopened somewhat in the UK. Wow. And from what one of my friends was telling me in Oxford is the day they could finally go back out and they had most of it to be outside dining, is the day that it became cold and chilly again. <laughs> and so it is cold and chilly here in New England to, to match England uh, today. So, But I figured I'd at least dream of better times when north of Oxford, this little pub called The Trout uh, uh, was up and running full and well with beautiful weather. <laughs> well, I don't have to imagine because here in Washington, in God's own country, it is 75 degrees and Sunday it's going to be 85 here. So we're about the head of, uh, you know, th- you know, sort of where you guys are in New England. And I keep telling people that here and they're sort of like kind of dumbfounded that people in New England kind of live with the month of April as a time where people are longing for spring. But here everything's in bloom. The trees are all, uh, you know, the leaves are coming in. All the flowering trees are, are beautiful. And I'm enjoying myself. I I think about you guys every once in a while when I see all that beauty. And I think, man, they're miserable back there. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you think of uh, of, of Luther before his, his change, uh, wanting all those souls to be sprung out of purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, New England is a kind of purgatorial place, isn't it, this time of year? Well, I, w- I was kind of thinking that it sort of fits. We were settled by the Puritans after all. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, just so folks know who, who listen to the show and have not had the, the pleasure of visiting New England at this time of year, uh, in a month, New England will be in bloom. And, and uh, New England is a beautiful place, uh, both in the spring and in the fall. It's one of the best places you can be in the country. But right now, everybody is frustrated. Because <laughs> it's not spring yet. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor, and I'm serving here in the uh, Vancouver, Washington area. I'm serving a church called Westminster Presbyterian Church. We'd love to have you if you find yourself in the area. Uh, I'm going to be on the road. I'm flying out tomorrow to Oklahoma, going down to Timber Creek Fellowship down there in Norman, Oklahoma, and that's going to be great. And then the week after that, so I fly down on Friday, fly back on Saturday night, preach on Sunday, fly out on Monday morning for Nashville. So I'll be with my oldest son in Nashville and his wife, uh, with my wife, and I'll be visiting. I'll have, I'm going to have lunch with, with George Grant on Tuesday, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, then after I've spent a week there recording an audiobook version of Man of the House, I'll be flying back to preach on Sunday here in Vancouver and then flying out to South Dakota to Rapid City for the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference. So if uh, you are listening to this and you're wondering whether or not you should go to the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference, it may already be going on. I'm not sure when this, this show is going to be produced or, I, I mean, uh, post, 
but uh, it's uh, something that's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. But anyway, enough about me. Uh, Tom, tell us about you. Uh, Tom uh, Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, and I teach philosophy as well. Uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. And uh, right now, yes, I am kind of stuck in New England, but uh, term is ending and uh, things will be opening up. I'll be writing this summer. Uh, That's one of my big aims to get something uh, finally uh, off the file and into print. (laughs) Nice, nice. We're looking forward to that. And Glenn, tell us about yourself, and uh, why don't you take take that uh, as your go-ahead, too, to tell us about the subject of the day, because you are the guy with the subject of the day. Hey, I am Glenn Sunshine, soon-to-be emeritus professor of history at Central Connecticut State University. And there's a huge ovation right now. Yeah. <laughs> Probably from my students, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and um, yeah, a couple of other things. <laughs> um, I am, uh, we, we got a request from one of our listeners. I don't remember whether it came via email or through the Grumblers. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Grumblers is a Facebook group for people who listen to the podcast. It turns out that the proper term for a group of pugs is a grumble. And so the the grumblers are the group. But but anyway, one way or another, somebody suggested that we might want to try to do a show on the ideas that Michael Heiser has been promoting through a number of his books. And um, what you're hearing in the background there is our cat. And that's very appropriate because we're going to be talking about demons and things like that. <laughs> um, but uh, what, what Michael Heiser does, I mean, if I were going to sort of bottom line it, I haven't read everything he's written. Um, none of, not all of the books and not all of the, uh, certainly not his, um, his uh, blog. But what it, it, from what I've read, a significant part of his focus is a book called First Enoch. And First Enoch is an apocryphal book. It was written in the intertestamental period. And Heiser's argument is that, if I were going to try to bottom line it, is that First Enoch provides a framework for understanding certainly the worldview of the New Testament writers, and a lot of it also goes back into the Old Testament, that, you know, whether it's in the mature form we see in First Enoch or not, a lot of the ideas in First Enoch certainly resonate with texts in the Old Testament that Protestants, most Catholics, I suspect, and so on, have read in a very different way. Right. So, if I were trying to sort of bottom line this, uh, there are two things that I think are particularly important that Heiser argues. Uh, One of them is that although scripture does picture God as transcendent, it also pictures him as the head of what Heiser calls a celestial court. That is to say, he is the monarch at a celestial body of other, well, divinities. But they're not 
God in the sense that he is, they're created beings, they're under him and all of that sort of thing. But there is this celestial court that surrounds God. And a lot of things that you see in the Old Testament are references to this. Um, So along with this, then, you can go to things like the book of Daniel, where in Daniel they talk about uh, princes over kingdoms. You know, there's the prince of of, um, of Persia, the prince of Greece, the, the prince of your people, um, Daniel's people, Israel, and so on. So these are actually celestial beings who have authority over kingdoms. Um, there are other, there, there's a wide range of types of these beings out there and so on. Um, and again, there are references to them in, in a, a variety of places in scripture and the Psalms and so on that have typically been read metaphorically. Right. So where you talk about the sons of God, the, for example, these are not angelic beings, these are people, or when scripture talks about, I have called you gods, small g, but you will die like men. Uh, right. We've taken that as being, you know, human kings, leaders, or whatever. Heiser says that's completely wrong, that the intent right. in scripture was to refer to these celestial beings. So the first big idea is this idea of a celestial court. Right now, now for listeners to the podcast, if you are interested in learning a little more uh, about uh, Heiser, he he's published a book entitled "The Unseen Realm." And I think that's probably the most uh, popular uh, of his books. And I'm looking it up. Oh, yeah, there it is. is. There's right. the. There's yeah, the I've, I've read it, uh, and on Amazon it has three thousand six hundred and eighty-four reviews. And uh, it's got a five-star rating with all those reviews. Um, and many of the people I know and we know uh, find his uh, work pretty compelling uh, in terms of his uh, research and so forth. And uh, he is a, uh, an important uh, figure in the world of Bible translation. And uh, he works at, at Logos uh, Bible Software. So... Uh, let me see. Now he earned his, his his PhD in the Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages. Um, anyway, he uh, where is he working currently? Is it for Logos? I think it's with you version. Okay. But anyways, we're not talking about somebody who's off in some closet somewhere coming up with some esoteric take on the Bible. We're talking about someone who's working with much of the very uh, best findings in textual and archaeological studies. Yeah. And the subtitle of the Unseen Realm is Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. And this is something we've talked about before, that one of the fundamental problems we have um, in the modern world today, I would say across the board, but within a lot of evangelicalism specifically, especially on the Reformed side, is that we really do not have a supernatural worldview. Um, You know, the idea of angelology, studies of angels. Um, We really don't have a place for angels in our theology. God is sovereign and sovereignly decrees all things to come to pass without violating the will of the creature, to quote John Gerstner. And 
you know, God's sovereignty, God decrees something to happen, it happens. There's no need for any other mediator or any other action. So we use Occam's razor to remove everything between God and us. Including angels. Including angels, despite the fact that scripture talks about them a lot, angels, demons, and so on. And what Heiser is doing here is he's trying to get back to the ideas of the people who wrote. And I I find him convincing on that point. That, however, raises questions of what we're supposed to do with that. Um, you know, because, well, here's the question. Does the worldview of the people who wrote scripture, is that the essential thing we need to recover? Were they correct in their worldview? Right, yeah. It's quite possible that God could reveal himself through people who held a defective worldview. Right. So how are we supposed to deal with this? How do we even make that kind of an assessment? Yeah, that's that's been a major preoccupation of mine, as you guys know, as I think about cosmology. When we think about cosmology, we're thinking about how the cosmos is populated and how it works and so forth. And not simply just how it came into being, but how it currently is uh, constituted. And so my book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, is is uh, really an attempt to show uh, the reader that you really can't understand Ephesians in particular Mm -hmm. without having uh, an understanding of the cosmos that a a typical Roman or Jew in the first century would have taken for granted. Right. Well, and that, you know, that, that, that's one, you know, big question, especially when it comes to issues that people have with modern findings, for example, and in science, as it refers to the cosmos, um, and, and, uh, and then, of course, nature and history, as they sort of become flattened in a a naturalistic uh, worldview. Um, And I think this is one of the things uh, like Boltmann tried to to deal with is he thought, for example, the Bible was had an outmoded worldview. We can't hold that in light of the modern view of things. So therefore, how do we demythologize it? <laughs> um, and, and for him, that meant basically looking for this excess, you know, a product of his time, an existentialist core that could kind of show itself in any new combination of worldview that, that we come up with. And I, I think fundamentally that's a problematic approach. And I think the minute you start doing that, um, you end up with a huge problem. I think, um, uh, let me think of, I can't think of his name at the, uh, off the top of my head, but uh, one of the, I think, best theological insights I have gotten over the years has been through, through the different figures that have tried to show that pretty much the whole, everything that is unique about scriptural understanding of salvation, Eucharist, redemption, um, fundamentally comes down to understanding who God is as scripture presents it, and then everything, that that distinction between everything in relation. So I do think scripture presumes that fundamental reality background. Now, the question is, what's included in that? Um, And that comes, I think this is kind of what he's trying to recover, is maybe more than what we that than what the typical uh, today's Christian um, gives the Bible credit for. So let, let, let me tease that out a little bit. 
I think that for most of us, we draw a distinction between heaven and earth. And heaven is the realm of God and the angels, and earth is where we are. And that fundamental distinction we draw there means we place angels on the side of God and not on the side of us, you know, in terms of the real dividing line. And yet, scripturally, with this idea of God as transcendent, that is really fundamental to scripture, the dividing line is between God and the angels, not between the angels and us. Yeah, whatever is a creature, whoever is a creature is below the line, right? Right. So, yes. so, and and the the beauty of what Heiser is doing here is a significant percentage of what he does deals with that the relationship between the angels and us. Okay, so he is putting the angels in a very real sense. Okay, you've got this divine court thing that a lot of people could see as you know making these sort of underling uh, you know of the same quality as God. Although I don't think Heiser goes there, but but the interaction of the angels and humans, the fact that you've got angels over human nations, the all of these kinds of things connect the angels to us much more closely than our typical heaven and earth division would normally do. Right. And some of that, I think, is, is frankly, you know, if we can go to uh, Schaefer, uh, Upper and Lower Story Thinking, or Nancy Piercy, uh, the fact-value distinction, I think that that's at work here, you know, that we view uh, areas that we can, that are not empirically observable as issues of value, opinion, faith, taste, something like that, rather than reality. Yeah, irrelevant in a sense, because mm-hmm. they have in, their, in that view, they have nothing to do really with what is considered most real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like when I think about you, you guys, you know, you're, you're my friends, you're real. Now you're, mm-hmm. you're dependent. And in a sense that we've talked about many times, dependent upon, as I am, God. But you're you're real in, in the sense that even though I can affirm that God is sovereign and that He uh, brings things to pass according to His will, He uh, chooses to work through people like you guys and me, even <laughs> maybe yeah. more more you than me. But 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 you get my point. <laughs> yeah. But but the idea is that is that, is not we're not trying to say that that God depends upon angels. Uh, as much as God chooses to work through angels, like he chooses to work through human beings and that they're, yeah. they're real, they're there. And, and consequently we did a show very early on, I believe, I think it was entitled our angels out of work. And we were, we were kind of getting at this point that even the, you know, you and I are not necessary, you know, we're not necessary. Uh, but we're, we're, but we're, uh, brought into God's work, whether we're necessary or not. And God chooses to commune with us and rework through us and use us. Same thing could be applied and should be applied to angelic beings. And it's worth noting that in Second Temple Judaism in the intertestamental period, they developed an elaborate angelology, which Paul references Yeah, in which these various ranks of angels are referred to as powers, dominions, authority, and things like that. So these are beings that the very terminology Paul uses are beings that have been given 
authority over something, to exercise authority in some way over something. And I think that this, um, and and I think, that can tie back to Daniel and any number of other things as well. And, and we can apply this to ourselves. You know, I'm an authority in a very limited sense over a very small, you know, piece of real estate, <laughs> you know, so to speak. But but there I am. I mean, I've got some authority that I exercise over this small sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. And um, God has to deal with me uh, because he's made me and placed me in this place. Now, obviously, he can overrule me. He can, you know, sort of correct me. He can do all sorts of things to, to bring me into line. Nevertheless, here I am. You know, and I, and I have been given some authority and some agency in his creation over a very small piece of real estate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the idea then would be the heavenly court consists of God. It consists of, well, think about it as almost like a, um, a medieval court where you have the king and you have all the great nobles and the lesser nobles and things like that. Those would functionally be the various ranks of angels. And they would be, their job is to execute the king's will. He, he delegates some authority and sends them out to execute his will, to govern, if you will, in their territories and so on. That's more or less the picture. And it isn't only medieval. You can go to the ancient world to see exactly the same kind of process in play. Um, that's essentially the picture that Heiser paints of this heavenly court. Now, of course, just like in the real world, some of the nobles don't want to do what the king wants them to do and want to go off and do their own thing. So you've got to deal with that too. Interestingly enough, however, Heiser doesn't exactly identify those people as demons. Right, right. And that brings us to the second big idea in Heiser, probably best um, explained in this book, Reversing Herman. I've not read that one. Yeah. Um, In this, what he argues is that, all right, we got to go back to Genesis. Um. The sons of God, Bene Elohim, saw that the daughters of men were fair. Okay. And they end up having, well, relations with them. And they produce a group of beings known as the Nephilim, uh, who were the mighty men of old, men of renown, quote unquote. Right. Okay. Now, the term Bene Elohim, the sons of God, Heiser argues is really a reference to angelic beings. That's what it's referring to. The Nephilim are, it's usually translated fallen ones, but in a technical analysis of the Hebrew, which I cannot follow because I don't know Hebrew, (laughs) um, he argues that that is actually not a correct translation of what the word Nephilim would mean. Um, He does note that when it's translated into the Septuagint, it's translated as gigantes, uh, giants. Right. Okay. Which is where we get that kind of term. Um, You know, the the idea in King James, there were giants. Okay. Now, 
Now, now d- d- that doesn't imply necessarily physical size, or does it? Well, I think he's going to argue. Yeah, they're going to be they're going to be bigger than the average bear. I think that that's where he goes there. Okay. You know, we're not talking 40, 50, 60 feet tall. Right. But a guy who's eight foot, you know, would nine foot like a, a Goliath would right. qualify as, as a giant. OK, so. His argument then, and this is coming straight out of first Enoch, there were a number of angelic beings known as the Watchers. You might. Uh, know the song ye watchers and ye holy ones okay Mm -hmm. watchers um some of them decided to deliberately violate god's will and enter the world and well have relations with women right i based a some a uh, kind of creature in one of my uh, upcoming young adult books on that so Mm -hmm. and called the watcher Okay, so the their offspring are these half-human, half-well, divine creatures, which explains why they were the mighty men, which, by the way, is a term that in Scripture typically refers to a warrior. Um, actually, the probably the closest equivalent would be the Greek word hero. Yeah, so we're talking about something very similar to Achilles or Aeneas mm-hmm. here, right? Right. So the, these mighty men of old, men of renown, famous, you know, the, these famous ancient heroes. Um, he justifies this reading partly from the text, but partly by comparing it to Babylonian legends that are, in fact, very similar. And you could also go, as you pointed out, to Greece. Achilles is half divine uh, and so on. Although in his case, it's the other way around, human father, divine mother, but still. Okay, so it is this action that causes the flood. Because when God looks at the world, he sees that the world is full of violence, which is one of the things that the Nephilim are pretty much explicitly said that they're engaged in from terms like mighty men and so on. And this is what causes the flood. This is why God floods the earth. It's to wipe out this this particular uh, group, basically. It's because of them that the flood happens. Then the spirits of the Nephilim, now this is Second Temple Judaism stuff. The spirits of the Nephilim then become the demons, the unclean spirits and such that plague humanity even in Jesus's day. So their understanding of demons was not that they're fallen angels. It's that they were the offspring of these illicit relations between God, or the gods, small g gods, the, the, the watchers, and the human women. And again, according to Second Temple Judaism, that's where unclean spirits come from, the, the demons. Now, it might be good um, going to, to give a little bit of a... A little bit of history on First Temple, Second Temple for for our listeners. Okay, First Temple Judaism is the Temple of Solomon. Okay, which then gets uh, destroyed when the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem. When the Jews are allowed to return um, under uh, 
several of their leaders, they rebuild the temple. That is Second Temple Judaism. Herod will then greatly expand it into the temple that Jesus is in, but that whole period is referred to generally as Second Temple Judaism. So what was Judaism like in this period, post the post-exilic period? You know, that's what we're really talking about here. So that is the understanding that the um, the, the people in Jesus's day would have had of these evil spirits. And so when the New Testament talks about it, that is really the worldview of the people who are writing it. That's how they understand what was going on there. The other interesting thing he points out is that, and this is one of the places where I think he may overrun his evidence a bit. One of the things that he points out is that in general, in Second Temple Judaism, they blame these guys, these demons, the, the, this, this interaction between the watchers and the human women, they blame that for the evil in the world, not the fall in the garden. Okay, so this is really the origin of evil, according to the, the Jews in Jesus's day. This is typically where they will look for evil to enter the world. Now, I don't think you can read Romans and come to that conclusion. Okay, this is where I think that, that Paul really corrects that view. He actually steps away from the view of the Jews of his day by putting the focus on Adam and Eve. But in any event, according to um, Heiser, that was the common view within Second Temple Judaism. So, oh, by the way, the watchers descended on Mount Hermon. Thus, Mount Hermon was associated with, well, evil, demonic activity, and things like that. Um, it's no accident that Caesarea Philippi, which was basically at Mount Hermon, had a cave in it that they had never managed to find the bottom of. And they, you know, it was believed by people in the area to be an entrance to the underworld. It was actually apparently referred to as the gates of hell. So when Jesus at Caesarea Philippi says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he's referring to this whole set of incidents and this whole set of beliefs here that, you know, all of the evil spirits, all the demonic hordes and everything else, nothing is going to stop the advancement of the kingdom. It was very specific to that physical location, why he took them there. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was um, not a place where a good Jewish boy would go. Right, right. Yeah, there's, 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 you know, there are a number of things that occur to me in terms of uh, questions and things I'd, I'd love to know more about. I don't know if we'll be able to get into any of the answers to these questions, but like one is um, when we think about Boltmann, you know, we talked about him earlier and sort of his demythologizing, you know, sort of his, his project. Seems like the, de the demythologizing had been going on for a long time. <laughs> in other mm -hmm. words, there, there were things that uh, were in the air in the in the first century that uh, we lost touch with at some point. Now, maybe we lost touch with it in one way, but not another. I think that there's been a strong uh, undercurrent of the kind of the, uh, we've talked about enchantment. Uh, you know, you could talk about uh, possession or uh, sort of tainting, you know, of, of, the world, uh, both at the natural and at the human levels, with the, the demonic, you know, sort of supernatural forces that are at work in things, and and 
you noted a moment ago, Glenn, that that Paul takes us in a direction that's more sort of um, maybe this is I don't mean this to be taken the wrong way, but humanistic, you know, in the sense that human evil can be attributed to to Adam and Eve and not to these forces that are tormenting us. But um, but again, there's that, you know, there's this the, there's this fact that so much of what we see in the New Testament you know, it's just like there are demons everywhere. I mean, there are demons under every bush, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's important to remember, too, that the same Paul that blames Adam and Eve for sin is also the one that specifically mentions these various angelic ranks that suggests that in, in Ephesians, he actually suggests that in a lot of ways, what we have going on in uh, human history and in redemption is an object lesson for the angelic hosts. Yeah, was it uh, chapter three, I think it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's easy to overlook, but it's it's really there. Right. You know, God is working through humanity in part to teach the angels something. Right, right. Yeah, there you know, so, so the same Paul that gives us Adam and Eve also puts a huge amount of emphasis on that. If the powers of this world had understood what they were doing, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. I mean, he talks regularly about this. It's it's not absent from his thought. Right. I think the other thing that comes into this is, you know, when it comes to this matter of interpreting and practicing uh, our faith, uh, can we do that? And this, I think, is the question. This is the question that's implicit in the subject. Can we do that? with a modern a sort of de- disenchanted worldview. Yeah. I don't think you can live as a Christian with a disenchanted worldview, although a lot of people try. Right. Well, I think that's the reason we're in a lot of the problems. <laughs> we have a yeah. lot of the most, most of the problems we have is, is because we're, we're trying to um, address uh, spiritual, fundamentally spiritual issues with, uh, with things that are completely disconnected to that. And the, and the issue it oftentimes is, I'm not saying most of the time, but often there is this, um, because there has become a growing unfamiliarity with this aspect of scripture and the, you know, the, the vision shaping scripture that people tend to be reactive or dismissive or close it off. So I don't want to look like, you know, crazy, charismatic, you know, Eddie down the street where they see demons in their soup. And, you know, they, you know, so they, they think that the answer to addressing, you know, um, this, this kind of overly fused enchanted world um, is to go the other extreme and become almost a deist um, or that, yeah, it's basically just God and uh, humanity and the animals um, and really everything else is just kind of, it's in its own realm and has no impact. Um, it, it, scripture talks, you know, the prince of the power in the air and in the way in which these things are, de- we're dealing with uh, principalities um, and, and the dethroning of them on the one hand, but the, the not fully have, you know, awaiting that final battle. And and then, you know, I was just thinking, and maybe I, I, I'm up next uh, for a show, and I think what I'm going to do is follow this talk up with a, a Dionysius the Areopagite, Dennis the Areopagite, um, who was very, he, he had a huge impact on the church because for a long time, people thought it was the Dionysius um, that was in the book, uh, you know, in scripture right. that was referenced. 
Um, and so even Thomas Aquinas, they read vigorously. And, and then later, as they came to recognize kind of the dependence of, of uh, Dionysius's um, way of putting things on a Neoplatonic um, metaphysics, nevertheless, the reason he found that attractive in many ways is because it allowed him to address those things that are so on the surface of scripture, the, what he calls the celestial hierarchy, um, the ecclesial, you know, the, the, the church hierarchy that is supposed to follow the celestial hierarchy. And Chris, you know, is the, the house in the, in the household all modeled on this. And and this was like this was something taken for granted. But you you have a ch- like a chapter in in his um, in his celestial hierarchy where he's completely addressing. He's got a chapter eight concerning the dominions, powers, and authorities, um, and theirs the middle hierarchy. And he's dealing with the middle hierarchy. He's dealing with angels, and he's he's talking about the you know the way in which angels have these special territories as you're talking about here. And one is. He, he's asking, why did the angels, he, he asked this question, someone might ask why it is or was that only the Hebrew people were lifted up to the divine enlightenment. The answer to this is that the angels have fully done their work of guardianship and that this is no fault of theirs if the other nations wandered off to the cult of false gods. So he, he's dealing with this and taking this seriously. So it's, it's a peculiarity of our church age, not the age of the church, that this stuff is not, not um, given its proper consideration. Yeah, I think that there may be uh, a kind of uh, recovery uh, in some surprising ways in our time. I think this, you know, this, uh, you know, work has uh, played a role. But I remember a few years back, you remember Scott Peck, the guy who wrote The Road Less Traveled? Yeah. Remember yeah. the book that he followed that with, The People of the Lie? Yeah. That's a fascinating book. Here's a guy who was a Harvard-educated psych- psychiatrist. So this is the sort of guy who prescribes drugs for your your mental issues. For people who regularly see angels. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> right, right. But he, uh, you know, uh, he, he became a Christian when he wrote The Road Less Traveled. He was a Buddhist, and then he converted to Christianity, and that's a fascinating story in itself. But in the People of the Lie, he uh, he dealt with evil as a as a real thing, or, or sort of. Now he, he I think he subscribed to Augustine's view of of privation, but I think though that he he recognized that there were evil creatures and demons, and in that book he uh, talks about possession which was fascinating because here's this guy who had everything to lose in terms of his, uh, you know, sort of academic and sort of uh, cultural standing by entertaining the possibility of demonic activity in his patients. But he actually was participated, if I remember correctly, in a, uh, an exorcism, just some fascinating stuff. Well, and and I think uh, you know again as as we start to see the the enlightenment buffer um, break down, I think we're going to we're going to encounter as a church um, stuff that parts of the third world see regularly. The the actual the, the much more you're not going to be able to put a veil over these things like the, the enlightenment kind of did. And I think if anything that has come out of a good that has come out of it's the kind of shattering of its synthesis. Um, in some ways, it's not every way, but in some ways is that 
you you start to see these manifestations stop to hide themselves behind rationality and and detached um, you know uh, reasoning and now you're starting to see people embrace this kind of um, these these spirits if you will and the church is going to be able to deal with them just through uh, you know uh, a philosophical argument but it's going to have to draw off of its spiritual spiritual warfare in the biblical sense of the word to to engage him like Paul did right right yeah. by the way um, when Paul the, the, he, I can't reproduce this because I don't remember the details, but what Paul argues, or excuse me, Heiser argues that when Paul talks about women having their heads covered in worship because of the angels, hmm. that that's actually echoing back to um, the uh, the Genesis story about the, the Nephilim. Huh. And um, he, he actually goes through a thing on what Greek physiology, how Greek physiology understood uh, reproductive organs and things like that as a way of of making sense out of that rather odd statement. So again, he's even though he doesn't go everywhere, I don't think Paul goes everywhere that Heiser says Second Temple Judaism did. There are still echoes of it in Paul, and it comes out even more powerfully in Second Peter and Jude. Right now, is the is the re- the reference you, that you just made to head coverings, is it found in the second book that you showed us? Because I don't yeah, that that's, um, that's in reversing Herman, yeah. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So, I mean, I like I said, I don't, I don't remember all of the details of the argument. It's, it's because it's kind of bizarre physiology. But nonetheless, that's, you know, that, that he, if you take that way of looking at it and integrate it with Genesis, it actually makes sense of that statement. Right. So in other words, it doesn't come across as sort of this arbitrary command that no one can figure out the reasoning behind. It's, right. it's something it, that many women in the in the first century would have said, of course. Mm-hmm. It would have made sense in that context, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, by the way, the, the, uh, dis, the reference to Jesus um, preaching to the spirits in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in the context of this whole concept of the Nephilim and all of that, these were, I believe, the watchers that God had condemned to Tartarus, to a kind of spiritual right. prison, right. who were more or less... Now, th- this is kind of interesting, because in First Enoch, the story is that Enoch is sent to preach, to proclaim to the watchers in prison that God's judgment is final and they're not going to be released. Interesting. Jesus goes to preach, to proclaim, um, is really the word, to the spirits in prison. And in a very real sense, that language is echoing what happened in First Enoch. Yeah. So this is not the harrowing of hell as we normally think of it in, in our world, but it is in this period between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus going down there and saying, you guys lost. Right. That's that's some preaching. <laughs> it, it is. And, and it's interesting because this is when you talk about the church being baptized and denouncing Satan, 
part of the proclamation of the gospel is not merely, okay, you can be reunited with God. Things are broken down. Believe in Jesus. It was Christ as victor. Right. Christ has victory over death, hell, and the grave. He is Lord over all, including this kingdom and this whole, this the, the whole cosmic uh, universe and creation. And this is, uh, you know, it, years later, um, I remember uh, hearing a story that part of Karl Barth's move away from liberalism um, was not only seeing the sin conditions that had built up in, in the kind of injustices in, in his community. Um, when he was pastoring, but in a town over, um, there was a, a preacher, kind of a little bit of an eccentric, uh, Christoph Blumhart, the Blumharts, and they had a girl that was a case of possession, which in his liberalism, he would have ruled out. But it was actually upon the proclamation of Christ as victor that she was delivered. And I think he ends up writing a whole book on this Christ as victor, but she could not stop. The, the, the demons shrieked. <laughs> at hearing this thing, Christ is victor. And she, this became her, her, the thing she, she, um, she held uh, on, on her tongue all the time because it was her deliverance. But today people would look at that as just kind of, you know, try to write it off as psychological or something of that nature. Um, Bart was very trained in that approach and it was something so undeniable for him that it, it made him go back and read scripture with a whole different, this is his whole notion of the kingdom of God bursting forth in Christ um, as as transcendent and and victorious um, was very central to his return to to a, a more orthodox Christian vision. Yeah, I think that sometimes we um, attribute uh, far more uh, validity to um, secular sort of uh, you know material. Uh, sort of outlooks than are warranted, many of those same people are really not as sure as they make themselves out to be. Yeah. And there are, there are things like this, you know, how, how do you refute that? I mean, uh, refute materialism, refute a denial of the spiritual sort of dimension of reality. Well, it's, it's not something you can simply uh, refute logically. What we're dealing with here are, realities like yeah. you know like no one believed there was such a thing as a platypus when the first uh, accounts of the platypus were <laughs> brought back to europe they were like no no there's no such thing as a beaver and a duck <laughs> you know <laughs> you know this this is impossible then they sent back photo you know photographs or whatever people actually brought back a pl i don't know how it all happened but but here you have it here's a platypus so uh you got to deal with it you know, what are you going to make of that? Um, well, and the other part of it is that the scientific method, which people say, well, you know, you can't really prove these things exist. Well, the fact of the matter is the scientific method has got real limitations. It only works with matter and energy. Right. And if there are things beyond matter and energy, science can't reach it. Right. Um, oh, oh, by the way, for that matter, you cannot prove that other minds beside your own exist. That's right. Logically, you, you just simply can't do it. So... You know, we accept these things on faith, right? And we go on from there. Uh, by the way, there's there's another psychiatrist. I haven't gotten his book yet. Uh, I've read a, I read an excerpt on Kindle. I'm going to get hold of it. I forgot his name off the top of my head, but we'll probably do a show on him later anyway. Um, but he has he worked rather closely with Catholic exorcists, huh. and he says, "All right, look." 
there is mental illness. We know that that exists. You know, there's this whole spectrum of things out there, but there are certain things that happen that cannot be explained. And it's not ever, it's certainly not everybody, not even the majority of the people who are mentally ill, but there are certain things out there that we cannot explain. Well, Uh, mm -hmm. I remember one example, probably inspired by my cat. Um, (laughs) He was going to be, um, or maybe Tom's cats. Uh, he, he was going to be going, he was going to be meeting a woman who was a pagan priestess or Satanist or something like that the next day. And his cats, who normally got along great, were fighting and, and stuff. I mean, they were fighting like cats fight to kill each other. Yeah. Dogs fight for show. Right. Cats fight to kill. And the, they they were trying to kill each other. And the, you know, he he had to wade in there and try to separate them, get them in different rooms. It could not, they never, this had never happened before. When he met the priestess the next day, the first thing she said to him was, how did you like your cats last night? Interesting. You can't explain that. Right. Using normal, rational, logical. Right. I I think that, you know, anyone who's had, um, encounters with something that is uh, clearly evil but is not material will understand what we're getting at i've had those yeah Mm -hmm. i I know that you guys have had those experiences um people who are materialists will say it's just all in your head or whatever but you know they're begging the question and uh, i think that you know for me um the, the sort of the, the tendencies that we see within evangelicalism uh, sort of, you know, sort of in the broadest sense and in the reform tradition in particular represent a, you know, with which deny at least uh, at a practical level. They, they don't deny it at a theoretical or, or, or they don't deny that there's a, there's a place for these things in scripture. They just don't believe that there's a thing, a place for these things in their lives. <laughs> yeah. if you know what I mean? It, it's, well, it's a dogmatic construction. It's not a, a lived reality. Right. right. Well, in, in one of the things that we see, I mean, script, the way scripture has it, I always tell my students uh, when they take systematic theology, that if you think that systematic theology is just about an intellectual exercise in the naked sense of the word, you fundamentally don't understand what it means to think in the Logos in, a, in the biblical sense. The intellectual task is part of our spiritual conversion, and that it is, Scripture calls doctrines doctrines of demons. So when we argue rationally, we actually are in spiritual warfare, drawing from truth and engaging the untruth, but there is that whole realm um, in which this is a contest uh, and a battle. And, and so this is why it isn't just enough to go study the arguments, but it's to, to be steeped in, in the spiritual practices and communion mm-hmm. with God, the church, and the spiritual disciplines so that one's passions are not, you know, easy targets for, for the demonic to, I mean, look, if, if you've seen anything in the evangelical world is how figures that have done a lot for the kingdom have been brought down at the end. 
um, right. become vulnerable. And and I think one of the reasons is because of the, the strong emphasis merely on the, the intellect, but not its connection to the full fabric of the spiritual. I mean, look at look at the way, for example, it, well, we see in, in the early church, the fathers, the way fast, how central fasting was. Right. Um, a lot of us don't, other than for a diet or to get our life in a better discipline, don't really think of, you know, where scripture says, look, these demons didn't come out or weren't rebuked because, you know, you weren't also fasting. <laughs> Some only come out with, with prayer and fasting. You know? Yeah, the the guys I work with in Sierra Leone, the, the head of the organization there, which I think I think I've said before, it's, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's the finest example of a Christian ministry I've ever seen anywhere. Uh, he says fasting is the key to spiritual power. Yeah, I believe it. I, 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 I uh, speaking again. One of the things that as reformed guys we do is we hold an abeyance or sort of we 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 suspect uh, any sort of uh, argument from experience. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and, and 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 there's a reason I think that that's uh, you know worth or or, or, or legitimate, but. But in terms of my own life, fasting and prayer, fasting and prayer have accompanied significant spiritual uh, sort of uh, events in my life. Hmm. And uh, now I, I, I chastise myself all the time because because I know all this stuff I, and I believe it. I'm reformed, but I also believe that that fasting uh, is important and it makes a difference. I believe that prayer is uh, you know, something that God has, um, given to us to, to, to engage in and that it makes a difference. Um, is, you know, when I, when I hear, you know, reform guys talk about sovereignty, I, I kind of look like, I, I kind of think of it like, remember back in the day when you get a textbook and all, and all the answers would be at the end of the, of, of the book, you know, you'd have like, yeah. You know, there'd be quizzes at the end of every chapter, but all, but there would be like the answers at the end. Yeah. To me, the argument sometimes that's made uh, from providence, uh, but especially from sovereignty, uh, is like cheating. It's like looking in the back of the book. Okay, so we know that God, okay, God did that. Okay, so yeah. What that means is you don't need to take the test. You don't actually need to do anything. <laughs> well, see, and see, Calvin, exactly. Calvin, well, of course, for some reformed, even Calvin's too much of a Thomas. But uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where you go with that, I, I'm, I wouldn't want to go. So, um, but, <laughs> anyway, um, but, but I mean, Calvin's point, you have to tap the well. He's talking about interpreting scripture. It's not going to interpret itself. You have to learn the languages, read the text, do the study. Do Yes, the Spirit's communing. Yes, the Spirit is can directly do things. But the normative means is through all these secondary things. This is why it's a, it's great to be a creature because we get to partake. We we are the unfolding of providence. We mm. are the unfolding of providence. Providence isn't isn't something that is minus us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let me give you. Let, let, let me throw one thing in here that is I I think directly related, but maybe not. Um, when you look at the biblical passages on predestination. When predestination is mentioned, it is never the starting point. It is always the conclusion. Right. So that the way predestination is used in Scripture, it, like I said, it is not the starting point. It's God has done all these things for you. 
you are saved, you are saved by grace through faith, and you've been predestined to this. It's, it's actually used for assurance. It's used for doxology. It is not used as a starting principle. Right. And I mean, and I think it, 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 it connected to that is you're, we're talking what what is predestination, but talking about the eternal ground, the eternal, mm-hmm. the 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 um, the ultimate causality, and then the ultimate end. But the point is, is that the whole the whole issue is that there is the creaturely, the secondary cause that is never can never supersede the the ultimate because they're working on completely different orders of being, which is the unseen. <laughs> That's exactly the point of the unseen. And that includes a whole realm of unseen. And mm-hmm. and so and 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 again remember I mean, a lot of people forget this is I have to beat my students back into perspective a lot is when we talk of for or knowing and predestined, there is no temporal sense. There is no time. We're dealing with eternity. We're we're talking before in the being sense, not in the time sense. And so we don't know how that works out. And then you do have this whole spiritual realm that is infused with everything. And that's part of the whole creation. And that part can't be left out. It, it's, it's completely at the heart of it. And it is really the, the, the truer and realer sense of things, if we could use those, yeah, those yeah. terms. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the point you just made there, Thomas, great. I think that both Arminians and Reformed people make the error of yeah. sort of locating God's sovereignty in time. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, which, you know, when the, when the Arminians do it, you know, it gives them some uh, sort of latitude to sort of work with their notions of human freedom yeah. uh, because God is somehow limited that way. But uh, when it comes to the Reformed, what, what they do is they turn God into a kind of a tyrant who's yeah. me- mechanistically controlling everything you know, sort of in a puppet-like way. And, I, and I, I've met many of these Reformed people. And yeah. you know what? They're not actually Reformed. They're weird people. Well, they, they've embraced the voluntarist conception of God, which is not the, the Christian view, it, right. to, be, to be honest. Because the Christian view of transcendence is that God is not in competition with the creation. In right. him, we live and move and have our being. That does not sound like my, I have to decrease in order for God to increase. Right, yeah. And... and and getting to this matter of, you know, unseen creatures, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about unseen creatures with yeah. the, you know, the stress on creature. <laughs> so mm-hmm. these are created beings like we are. So like if I were to say, okay, do I need to talk to Tom today or Glenn today about such and such uh, when God is in charge of everything? I could, I could say, well, no, I don't need to talk to Tom or Glenn. I could just sort of like, you know, be passive and accept that God sovereignly works in all things. But, you know, that's just nonsense. And not, you know, and, and in relationship to this, um, these unseen creatures are as real as you and me. And in the same way that we are real, we're all dependent upon God. And we need to account for these these creatures. So if you possess something, Glenn, that I want, I come to you and and have to deal with you. Or if you're engaged in some kind of activity that is somehow detrimental to me, I need to deal with you. 
And, and I think that when we think about unseen creatures, uh, we need to think in the same way. There are creatures that are harmful and who are at work to thwart us and harm us. Uh, uh, but there are other creatures who are, you know, helpful and are for us. And by addressing them and dealing with them, we're not at all calling into question God's sovereignty. And, and a quick thing, I know we don't have time to go here, but it, it, you know, when we, when we understand, especially the patristic world in which, you know, the, the kind of as, as scripture, uh, as the, as the early Christians move out into Hellenic culture, that attractive to this notion of deification, we, we call it glorification, but this notion that we, you know, the, that we are called, you know, as Christ becomes human um, so that we can be lifted up and be divinized was the term. We don't become God, but we become deified in the sense that the life of God, the energies of God's life are now the source of our life. And it's interesting the way, because in this world, the spiritual, when they use terms like gods for angels and the like, it's suggesting that the spiritual realm that is in accord with God is something permeated by this. And this is why, again, back to the way, for example, certain Orthodox will read Romans is when they talk about predestination, they always put the emphasis on to what? To a people who are made godlike to do good works, not to be justified by good works, but to do these, called to be like God in the world. And so there is this stronger sense. We don't, we're not de... See, what happens is we get in this competition where to, to say that we've been permeated by God's own life, somehow we've been called to be brought up into the life of God in this way. We think pantheism or panentheism. Right. No, it's this is what it means to be a creature fulfilled, brought to living from the eternal life of God. Um, and, and and so this language is something that's very foreign to us, especially in the in the, you know, not materialistic West. Um, but that this stuff would have been attractive to to the early church. Right. Right. So. I'm going to actually circle back. We're, we're, I think we're running out of time. I want to circle back right to the beginning with the question that I still don't have an answer to, mm-hmm. which is, and I didn't expect you guys actually to give me one, but it's one I think is <laughs> worth wrestling with. Um, Heiser has got me pretty convinced that what we're deal, what he's explicating here, is what the worldview of the biblical authors was. To what extent, as a faithful Christian, do I need to share that worldview? Right. Mm-hmm. On, on some level, absolutely, this idea of the unseen realm, as he calls it, absolutely no question there. Um, I guess the place that it really, you know, I mean, even the idea of I mean, Daniel explicitly teaches that they're angelic powers over nations. I mean, you know, we all of that, I think, you know, as, as a biblically faithful Christian, you've got to you've got to agree with. I guess the thing that that I have a harder time with is the whole Nephilim thing. It's clearly there in the New Testament writers. There's no question about it. This is what they are thinking. You know, the Jude especially, it's really clear there. Um, how much of that whole picture of the world, I mean, first Enoch is not in scripture. 
but it did clearly unless you're from the, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Unless you're Ethiopian <laughs> Orthodox. But it, but it did clearly inform the writers of scripture. Yeah. So what do we do with it? Yeah. How do we understand the fact that this worldview is well, this way of understanding these things is so radically different from what we would normally take? Yeah, let me make a suggestion. Um, I think that uh, the challenge for us uh, in the modern world is to um, relativize what was been, been absolutized and absolutize what has been lost. So what I mean by that is, is that uh, there are things that modernity has uh, shown us that are true. There are certain physical processes that are, you know, recently been, have recently been uh, documented, discovered, however you want to put it. Uh, you know, when we think about, you know, uh, things related to physics, or we think about things related to um, immunology, or, you know, whatever, you know, we can think about the physical world and its, uh, and, and the ways in which it resembles a mechanical process. So, so I don't think that the, that the created order is a machine, but I think that, that in some ways the analogy uh, of a machine is helpful to a degree, helping us to sort of think about, okay, if we do this, this will happen, that kind of thing. I think that uh, that needs to be relativized. That's the thing that needs to be brought off of its high horse. And, and we need to think of it think of that not as ultimate reality, but merely as a kind of sub sort of uh, sort of sphere, a sort of realm of act of uh, phenomena. And uh, in spite of all of the, you know, discoveries that we've made through, you know, empirical science, uh, we need to uh, recognize the sort of the larger picture, the ultimate sort of pick, sort of, sort of framework, which is that there are unseen forces at work, that there are things so that, so that purposes um, and meaning is not subjective. There's, there's stuff out there that's real, that is not material in, in essence. Hmm. That's the thing we need to kind of get back to. And now, Mm -hmm. question is, is, did the ancients have it all figured out? That's what I would say I'm not willing to fully buy into. I think that, that we can challenge some of their thinking. Yeah. How to go about that, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I'm not willing to completely just say, well, because people in the first century thought that's the way it worked, that's what the way it worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the way, one other interesting thing, the, the watchers who seduced the women also taught a number, taught humanity a number, according to First Enoch, taught humanity a number of things. It included metallurgy, specifically aimed at warfare, violence. It included sorcery. Hmm. It included cosmetics. Huh. <laughs> which were part of the, quote, the arts of seduction. Right, right. And it taught, they taught, it, it, it describes it as cutting roots. Mm. I think what that's referring to is uh, psychoactive drugs, 
pharmacology in that sense. I think that that's what it's referring to because one of the words that's translated sorcery in the New Testament is pharmacae, meaning right. drug, right. You know, right. drug-induced sorcery. So those evils they attribute to the watchers. And those are really some of the, the, the big ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, it, you know, there's not a lot of better ways to explain it just in the sense that they obviously have evil as their root and they came into <laughs> the creaturely world we're familiar with in, in, in some kind of way. Um, and I, but I think the point is still, it's going to be one, the rest of, I mean, what we take, I, I would say, of course, the primacy of scripture in terms of, of, um, its metaphysic and its its worldview shouldn't be um, um, done with you know treated the way Boltmann, for example, treated it. Or I think a lot of the higher critics, the, even the, the ones that are evangelical, tend to think, well, that okay, Paul believed that about the world, but you know we can't go with that anymore because we you know we know Paul was just a you know a bigot from his times, you know, and and all the like. Okay, so, you know, what does that have to do again with you know the fact that maybe he's talking about reality in a way that uh, it's been revealed to him to see in ways that us as bigots today can't see, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, so I, and I, I think that we we do. I mean, Bart was similar, and he he took a little bit of that where he 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 would say, for example, Scripture doesn't give us a worldview. Um, he said because it's filled with all these different worldviews from the different writers and their times, and so again, this kind of Christological, this kind of Christological metaphysic is somehow supposed to tie it all together. But I, I think I think that's caving too much, and that's that is not what is clearly assumed and taught in scripture. And, and you're either going to have a, a, a big vision of it, or you're going to start, you know, cutting and pasting. And at that point, you know, again, you end up with this um, spiritually um, deracinated um, worldview that is nothing more than, a, you know, a answer to therapeutic questions. Right. That's a, that's a good, good way to kind of bring this to a conclusion. I think, you know, Glenn's right. We're at a point where we should wrap this up. Glenn, is there anything you want to say as we wrap up? Um, I think Heiser's um, a really interesting guy. I think he's got some very convincing arguments about what the biblical authors had in mind. But once again, I'm not entirely sure what I'm supposed to do with them. Um, Some of it is really clear. We got to pay attention to the unseen realm. Some of the others, they're a little shakier. But anyway, that's where I'll leave it. Yeah, maybe someday we can have Heiser on with us. We'll see. Yeah, that would be neat. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, we appreciate your support of the Theology Podcast. Uh, We are, as we've said many, 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 many times, astounded at the size of our audience and and the interest that that our listeners have in what we talk about. And we're also very grateful. There are people who actually throw money at us and we don't spend a lot of time asking for it, but it is great. It is gratefully received because it does help us underwrite the show. You know, uh, if you like what we do, uh, you know, uh, giving us a good rating on whatever platform you listen to us on is helpful. Uh, I'm told, and I'm no authority on this, (laughs) that, uh, good ratings help our, uh, search sort of metrics, I guess, uh, we show up more if we, if more people like us, uh, fewer people like us, we don't show up as much anyway, that, that does help. And, and so thank you for what you've done. And if you haven't 
If you haven't given us a, a five-star rating or whatever you do on whatever platform you listen to us on, uh, that would be helpful. Anyway, that's enough of that. Um, so uh, thank you very much for listening to the podcast today, and we'll be with you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.